We did a series around uh, God loves, and uh, we did a week around God loves the world. Last week we talked about God loves the church, and we made that really specific to actually God loves our church. Thinking about this idea of uh, what sort of God have we got? A God who is expansive and gracious and trying hard really not to get too quickly to then what do we do. But at this point, simply, what's God like and who does God love? And as Susie said at the beginning of service, today I wanted to think about this idea that God loves our enemies. God loves our enemies. Me and the Pope have got something in common. All right. Both snappy dresses from Rome. No, um, me and the Pope have got something in common, and it's this. We both drive a Fiat 500. Um, we're the only two blokes on the planet that drive a Fiat 500, um, but we both drive a Fiat 500. It's been a bad few weeks for my particular Fiat 500. Um, a few weeks ago, I was uh, traveling uh, along the M6, uh, along the Lim Viaduct on a Friday evening at about 4.30. And if you've been on the Lim Viaduct uh, on the M6 at that time of the week, you know it's absolutely rammed with traffic. And it's nose to tail all the way. And uh, one, I was sort of like uh, traveling along. If you've never driven with me, one of the things you need to know is that, <laughs> is that sometimes my attention span doesn't quite last my journey, if you understand what I mean. All right, it kind of fails the length of a journey. And uh, I have to admit that there's a lot of interesting stuff to look at on the limb interchange, other than the car in front of you. And so therefore, I uh, tested my bumpers by uh, just drifting into the car in front of me. And because uh, I thought he'd moved, I, I thought he should have moved. And uh, I was annoyed that he hadn't moved. And uh, he was remarkably charming. But even so, I kind of got back in the car, um, kind of really annoyed with myself, but annoyed with him, really, because he should have moved. And, um, uh, and, and he didn't. And I, I kind of, I didn't do massive damage, but I hit it. And then on Monday, um, my daughter, who, um, who has her own car, uh, but without any petrol, um, um, took my car, which did have petrol, and, um, and, and was driving it down Langley Road in that area, and uh, someone drove into her. Uh, she was going along the way, and this guy came and smashed into her uh, there. I did ask that eventually, but uh, whether she was okay. But I, I, when she rang me, she was more concerned about the car, and, and to be honest, so was I. And um, uh, she talked about what happened, and uh, she talked about this guy who was going to drive off, and indeed did drive off until two women, her being one of them, persuaded him to stop. You don't really mess with my daughter when she's just been driven into um, But he'd left the car, and he'd wanted to drive her off, and he'd given her a bit of abuse but she's made of stern stuff, is my daughter, and uh, held her own. I wonder how you feel when little things like that happen to you. What sort of language do you use about the person who's done it? When it's clearly two incidents with one fight Fiat 500, but which were clearly not the driver's fault. <laughs> All right, a stupid man on the M6 who wouldn't move, should have moved, didn't move, and uh, an arrogant, stupid man, perhaps, who drove into us. 
it's really easy, isn't it, to let off, to let off about it all. You might have had an incident like that this week. You've probably been watching, and you're probably tired to death of watching the EU debate. Please, Lord, bring the referendum quick, and whatever the result is, just let us get over with. Because aren't you tired of hearing that they're a bigot, they're an idiot, they're out for themselves, they're um, whatever. The arguments we watch, the things we come to feel, begin to help us and encourage us to use language that, of other people to strip them of their own identity. Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, some of you will know, Jesus is, is saying to people, you've heard it said in the past. And one of the things he said, he's, in the past, you've heard it said, don't kill anybody. But Jesus said, but actually, your words really do matter. And he said, be careful. And he uses two, lang- two words that are kind of need to be translated. He said, be careful if you call one another raka, which means fool. And be careful if you call someone and the language, the word is more, which is linked to that word for moron. It's where we get the word moron from, or an idiot. Be careful you don't call someone else an idiot. And it's not that sort of affectionate, oh, you idiot. It's the idiot. It's the tone that you've got to catch. It's the fool, not the, oh, you daft fool. It's the language that strips you of who you are. It's easy when it's them. It's where you're reminded that your mouth and your heart are connected. And we strip them of their real name, and it's them. And we know exactly what they're like. And then, because we're Christians, sometimes we find that this is true. This is a quote by a woman called Anne Lamott. She's a writer, a Christian writer. She said, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. (laughs) It's a fantastic quote. It's kind of like we get God on our side. And now God and me are really angry with you. And at that point, we've created a God of our own image. I want to read a story. It's a short story in the best sense of that word. It's the story of Jonah. And we're going to read all of it. But the thing, just two, just two pieces of information that are worth noting. Factual information. Firstly, you're going to hear about God asking Jonah, one of his prophets, to go to a place called Nineveh. And Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was the worst, the most uh, ugly, the most cruel empire of its day. And Nineveh was at its heart. And Jonah instead decides to go to Tarshish. And uh, Tarshish is generally thought to be literally the end of the world. And in those days, the end of the world was the end of the Mediterranean. It's Spain or Gibraltar. The only thing you need to know is that when Jonah is standing in Jerusalem, when he's having this being said to him, Nineveh's that way and Tarshish is that way, literally. Okay, that's factual. Second thing is that this story you get straight in. There's not much introduction and there's no real ending. The third thing about this story is I think it's supposed to be humorous. 
And the fourth thing is, you're not supposed to be like Jonah. If you've got a Bible, uh, or you'd like to read a Bible while I read uh, the text together, it's in Jonah. So not always easy to find it, because it's like one of these things that's only got two pages. So find your way into the Old Testament. If you get to the big prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then just flick forwards, you'll hit Daniel. There's quite a few chapters in Daniel. Then you'll get to Amos, and then you should hit Obadiah and Jonah. You can always go to the front of the Bible and find the contents page, and that gets you there much quicker. And that is not to be, sh- no shame in that. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But John had gone down below deck where he lay down and he fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us so that we won't perish. And the sailors said to each other, come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? And Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it'll become calm. I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they couldn't. For the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, don't let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And they made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas and all the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. There's nowhere to arrive anywhere, is it? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. 
Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began going, by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, don't let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so we won't perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and didn't bring on them the destruction he threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a good and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the good. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the good, so it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head, so he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than live. And God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the good? It is, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this good, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And shouldn't I have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? You kind of want to turn over, and you can't. Why? When you listen to that story, which some of you know really, really well, what encourages you? God's heart for the people of Nineveh. The people of Nineveh, I mean, in the real people of Nineveh were doing child sacrifice. They were involved in awful things. They'd done awful things to other countries. But God has a real heart for them. What else encourages you? Yeah, it's kind of like, why bother God? He's clearly a busted flush. Leave him in Tarshish. We're better off without him. But he doesn't. He keeps going with Jonah. What else encourages you? There's not much about Jonah in these four chapters that you think, oh, bless him. You don't like him when he's on the ship. In fact, you laugh at him on the ship, don't you? Because the sailors go, who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing? I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord of the heaven and earth, uh, the maker of the sea and the land. And what are you doing? I'm running away. 
you're a twit. You don't like him when he's in, in the fish because the prayer seems too pious. I will proclaim the word of salvation, yeah, like you will. We don't like him when he's going into Nineveh because he's all he's got in and goes, 40 more days, you're going to be destroyed. There's no good news here. And we don't like him sitting on the hillside watching Nineveh going, God, I knew you'd do this. There's nothing about Jonah that we like. What else encourages you? <laughs> God, God does seem to love him. God speaks to him. God provides a whole range of interesting stuff for him. So Jonah wants to commit suicide on the ship. God provides a fish for him. God does seem to have a soft spot for Jonah. Is there anything else that encourages you about it? I think God may well have a sense of humor in this story. And I certainly think, as I said, I certainly think the, the story was kind of like designed for you to at least smirk, if not belly laugh. What challenges you about the story? Jonah's like us. That's the big challenge, isn't it? What else challenges you about it? <laughs> yep, you can do it smelling a fish vomit, or you can do it the first time. It's up to you. <laughs> but God's not gonna God's not gonna give up on you. What else encourages you? Okay, and he doesn't. That's the bit I'm getting to. That's <laughs> okay, and that's the encouragement. That <laughs> yeah, that God doesn't do what we would do. Anything else that encourages you? Yeah. Yeah, that one person and 120,000 people, they turn to God. Now, in some ways, this story is, um, is kind of, you see Jonah being used by God in two places to, to help people who don't know God know God. He helps in the first chapter with the sailors. The sailors turn to God in a much better way than Jonah ever did. And then at the end of the story, you have the city turning to God. One man being used. One man whose heart's not right. One man who isn't what we would hope. You've got a little picture of Jonah, the little man there under the tree. This fascinating story. Jonah, who is angry because what God seems to do is God seems to love Jonah's enemies. That's why Jonah's angry. Because God loves Jonah's enemies. This book was written, and the reason it's there is it was a direct challenge to the people of God. Because it's really easy for you to work out who God's on the side of and get it wrong. And Jonah's standing there or sitting there and he gets angry because 
these people have been given grace. They haven't been treated as they deserved. And Jonah's angry about it. And then the story about the tree or the good, the, the sort of this vine, this strange vine that shoots up overnight and gives him shade. And he's really happy about that. And then God provides the worm that chews up the tree. And he's really angry. In fact, where it says in verse 9 of chapter 4, is it right for you to be angry about the good, the tree? It is, and I am so angry, I wish I were dead. God, you're not playing fair, is what Jonah's saying. Jonah wants a God on his own terms. But Jonah has to come to terms with, this is our God. So here's my question. What do you think he did next? So you get to the end of chapter four. This city go, yeah, we want to know this God. We, we want to repent. And the, if you remember, the book finishes with God saying, you've been concerned about the good, though it didn't tend or uh, you didn't tend it, you didn't make it grow. It sprang up overnight. It died overnight. Shouldn't I have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and also many animals. What do, you think, what do you think the next thing is? What would Jonah do? He's sitting, he's sitting on the hillside. He's watching it. What do you think Jonah did? What are the options? He could have repented. Jonah could have said, God, you're right and I'm wrong. And I want to go into Nineveh. I'll be their pastor. I'll live with them. And I'll teach them what it means to follow you. What else could he have done? Fun? He could have kept running. He could have found that ship to Tarshish again. Let me go somewhere exotic. Let me go somewhere away. Let me get away. What else could he have done? He could have been... Just an angry, aging man on a hillside going mad with rage because of the way God deals with people that he doesn't like. It happens with so many people, doesn't it? You just find that bitterness that starts to rise up in you. And you don't go anywhere. You don't move. You don't change. Nothing happens. You just stay bitter. And you find yourself getting older and the bitterness is there. Uh-huh. Maybe, yeah, maybe you realize, maybe this was Jonah's big moment of revelation of, I've been a fool. He had it all. He was, he, and you know, he hears from God. God wants to use him. Had it all. Why do you think the story finishes like that? Because it's a story. Very similar to the parables, isn't it? What, what you're supposed to do with it, do you think, as a reader? Okay, but what's the lesson? 
okay? And why do you think there's no resolution of the story? The story is not resolved. It's still ongoing. You're supposed to see yourself sitting on a hillside, looking at people who've done you wrong and work out, am I going to stay here? Am I going to try and go back to Tarshish? Or am I going to walk into Nineveh? You're supposed to, I think, we, I, I'm supposed to read this sitting on the hillside almost with Jonah. I think I'm supposed to hear God say to me, well, what about that bloke who rode into you? Is it okay just to get really angry and create an enemy? Or do I love him too? There's another story, isn't there? There's another story with a resolution of Jesus on a cross. A story that's played out in full front of everyone. And when you remember the story of Jesus on the cross and you hear Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Has it ever crossed your mind? They did know what they were doing. <laughs> Has it ever crossed your mind? No, they, they wanted to get rid of you, Jesus. They really did want to get rid of you. Has it ever crossed your mind that Jesus just offering them forgiveness seems too easy? But then, of course, we stand in front of the cross and go, but me, <laughs> I want forgiveness. It's a phrase I've used before, but it's that thing where what I want to happen to other people is justice. What I want to happen to me is mercy. I want justice for other people, but I want mercy for me. And I wonder if you can imagine yourself standing beside the cross and seeing Jesus hanging there and hearing him saying, Father, forgive them. And you looking on and going, this is our God. This is what God's like. Now, I don't know if you've got enemies, and I think probably the language of enemy is probably too harsh for most of us. But some of you probably have got people who you kind of, you're always worried about because you don't know how they're going to receive you. You've got people that you're slightly, it's like at best, it's walking on eggshells with. You've got people who might kick off and you're frightened how they're going to kick off. And this morning, all I want to say is this, that God says, I really love them. And, and some days it's really hard because you want to say, but God, they don't deserve that. They don't deserve that. Do you not see what they've done? Do you not see what they've done to us? Do you not see how they have thought about us? And God says, yes, but you can choose to sit on a hillside being angry with me because I love them. 
floor. You can come down from the hillside. And the next part of the story, well, that's your story. And maybe the reason that Jonah's story ends there is because actually you've got to imagine yourself into that story in order for you to live your story. So what what happens next with those people? For some of you, those people will be in your own families. What happens next? Because God loves those. For some of you, there's going to be people in your workplace who have really caused difficulty for you. And it's, well, God really loves them. How will you now act? I guess we've all got those sort of people. And the difficulty sometimes is that we want to make God in our own image. And he refuses to be made in our image. God is more gracious than we would imagine. His love for those who are his enemies is remarkable. When Susie read at the beginning about Paul and reminding us that Paul was a sinner, a great sinner. It was because Paul recognized that in himself, he was like a microcosm of what God wanted for the whole world. I said at the beginning that really this is not a sermon where you've got to go out and do a whole stack. What it is, is a reminder who God is and how he treats his own enemies. And some days, some days, that's enough of a challenge for me because it's not the way I think sometimes. God is a God of grace who showers it upon us but then offers it to those around. The story of Jonah is a great story. It's a story that you're designed, that is designed to live with you. It's a story that you're supposed to capture and take it into your heart because, I think as Val said, because we are Jonah. We are Jonah. How's this story going to end? Let's pray together. I wonder if the musicians, you want to come back We're going to uh, be taking communion together. Father, forgive them. And we'll come and we'll, if we're honest, we'll say, it's me. I need to be forgiven. It's my heart. And then we'll go as agents of forgiveness. No longer, in a sense, kind of wanting Jonah to be forgiven, wanting the Jonah in us to be forgiven, Want in that fresh start. Lord, speak to me again. Send me again. Let me go again. Let me go and serve the God who loves my enemies. Don't want to make a big deal out of it, but I just wonder whether, I think Pat was talking about this this idea of the bitterness that creeps in sometimes. And it's, it's kind of like when all our, you know when your arteries get all clogged up with all rubbish and gunge and fat and horrible stuff and, and in the end it'll kill you. So I think bitterness surrounds our heart and then squeezes it so hard that in the end we die inside 
And we find ourselves sitting on the hillside, just bitter. And I think that's where I really want us to pray this morning. Into the bitterness. Because of what people have done and because of the way we felt about it. And we find ourselves on a hillside stuck. Unable to move forward because actually the truth is we feel the bitterness and we feel it creeping and we feel it beginning to kill our own hearts. This next bit is a big deal because I'm going to ask you if you recognize that feeling. No one's going to come and talk to you. No one's going to come and ask you what it is. But if you recognize that feeling in your own heart, we're going to pray together, but I wonder if you want to stand and we'll pray together. And in standing, what you're saying is, I recognize it. It's a human feature of my own life, and I want God to sort it. So if that's relevant for you this morning, do you want to just stand and we'll pray, and then we'll take communion together. If you recognize that bitterness that's in danger of taking over, just where you are. Father God, I thank you for the courage and the vulnerability of those who stand. They stand today, but Lord, it could have been others, us a different day. And Lord, I pray that where the bitterness is in danger of strangling us, Lord, I pray that your freedom would flow into those who stand. Lord, we stand and we recognize who we are and what we are because we recognize that things have been done to us, said to us, said about us. And God, we wanted you to do some stuff that would change that situation and it didn't happen. And so, Lord, the danger was that in our own hearts we just grew hard. Lord, as we stand, forgive us for our hardness. Guard us against the bitterness. Lord, may we, in our own hearts, may we sense again the grace of Jesus. Do a new work, we pray. Why don't we all stand?